Hello, everybody. My name is Jeff Bogazic, and I want to welcome you to the Mind for Life podcast. I appreciate you listening. And to start things out today, I want to start with a couple of questions. First of all, what is a good education? Second of all, what is happiness? Third of all, what is true? Today we're going to be talking about the problem of quantification. And this is a podcast continue, continuing in our series on impacts of human perception. Impacts of human perception. Appreciate you listening to the Mind for Life podcast today. And before we get into it, I do want to encourage you to, if you haven't already, go back and listen to our previous three podcasts. We talked about coping with information glut, One of the problems of perceiving and understanding things in the world, like what is true and what is right, is that we are beset, if you will say it that way, with copious amounts of information. We have scientific studies on every single side of an issue seeming to prove and disprove theories left and right. Uh, We don't know what's true because we can't comprehend the information that surrounds us. We also talked about the focusing illusion, which is the tendency that we have as human beings to misjudge the scale of impact that certain circumstances have on our life. We sometimes think that circumstances will have more of an impact when they won't. We misjudge that. We sometimes think instances will not have an impact when they might have a major impact. But we have a tendency to look at the world around us, perceive things, and then misjudge what those actual reality impacts are when they find themselves in our lives. And then last time we talked about the science medium, understanding science as a medium or an environment in which we live uh, and the resultant um, history of that and how that as acts uh, science itself, not just scientific studies, but the environment of science tends to cloud our thoughts or filter our thoughts or color our thoughts in specific ways or particular ways and causes us to think about certain things. And I think the science medium is kind of what contributes to the problem of quantification that we find right now and that we're going to talk about today. So uh, gear up for that. do want to let you know about a resource that we have on our website. Uh, You can go to mindforlife.org and the show notes for this are mindforlife.org forward slash zero six five. There is a resource for how to start a difficult conversation. One of the most accessed articles on my website is a nice person's guide to being assertive and people have difficulty in asserting themselves and communicating their thoughts, feelings, and emotions with confidence and skill. How do you have a difficult conversation? How do you approach someone? How do you have the courage to be able to get into that conversation? So we created a resource for you. It's a free download. You can access it right on the show notes for this page. And it just kind of gives you a guideline on a map, if you will, how to start a difficult conversation, what to say, what are some techniques that can get you into the conversation without it turning into a full-blown argument, and hopefully it turns into something that's constructive. So you can find that there, mindforlife.org 
forward slash zero six five. And also any of the resources that I reference in this podcast are available on that site as well. The show notes will have resources and things that I reference in this podcast. And so we'll put those up for you there. Okay, let's get into the problem of quantification. What the science environment has created is what I would consider a misperception. And that is the misperception that we can actually quantify things that we are completely unable to quantify. And I think social science to to a certain extent relies on this. And now let me just say up front that as human beings, we want to know things. We have a desire to measure, to count, to master certain pieces of knowledge. And that's a result of just the incredible study and research and what science has brought, what new knowledge has brought to our human awareness. Um, One of the things that Alfred Korzybski is famous for is calling human beings time binders. And what that means is that we have the ability that no other species on the planet has to bind time. And ultimately, that means that we can preserve information and pass that down to later and later generations. So we're not stuck still believing that the the earth is flat, for example, or that everything in the universe revolves around the earth because people have done research and have studied and have learned things about the universe and learned things about the earth and have preserved that knowledge. And it has come down to us in later generations. And we can know that certain things are not the way that they once were. One of the things about science is understanding that science is continually evolving, right? And that There will be knowledge tomorrow and knowledge next year and knowledge 10 years down the road and new discoveries that we may that we don't know now. And while we think that science is settled now that we know where what the universe is or what this is or what that is, that down the road at certain times, new knowledge is going to come up that's going to disprove things that we completely believe now. Go back to the flat earth, right? Or go back to uh, the earth as the center of the universe, right? So new knowledge comes up and what was once settled science about either the earth being flat or about this, uh, the earth being the center of the universe, science discovers things. People discover things. There's new knowledge. Those theories have to change. The earth is round, right? And uh, the sun is not the center of the earth is not the center of our universe, but rather the sun is the center of our solar system. And our solar system is situated within a galaxy and galaxies exist within the universe and all of those things that that they didn't know back then because the science had not developed. And so we have to think in terms of the future and where we are now, right? We recognize that in terms of the past, but when it comes to the future, we often don't think that. We don't think that in 10 years, there may be a new element, for example, on the periodic table that we're just unaware of right now, or there may be something new that comes out scientifically, or we may have a new discovery that comes out that we're just not unaware of, right? We have scientific theories about things now, that are just theories that are 
thoughts and theories about what may or may not account for the way that things are in the universe. They're not settled, but they're theories, and we try to prove them or disprove them. If you're scientific, really, the... the um, principle of falsifiability is important, that you are writing a theory that is able to be proven false. If you don't have a good theory that is able to be proven false, you're not doing great science. And so understanding that science may be changing and is changing as new knowledge and new discoveries are brought into um, our awareness and brought into the knowledge. And so that's kind of a problem um, in that sense, because we, first of all, don't recognize that science is changing and that new knowledge and new discoveries. But when we get back to the idea of quantification is we're living in this scientific environment. And I think I mentioned it before, right, to the person with a hammer, everything's a nail. We've heard that before. To the person carrying a hammer, everything's a nail. Uh, I used this in one of the podcasts in the past. To the person with a camera, everything is a picture, right? When you have a camera as in your hands and that you're walking around with it, you have to take everything as a picture. Everything is thought of in terms of a picture. And if you're a content creator, someone who's having to post content, right? If you have a to the person with social media, everything is content. So it's interesting. We've entered into this era, if you will, in our human history where we now have a platform and everything now is content. We are creating content. And if you are a photographer or a content creator for uh, someone who takes pictures, you have this thing. Everything is a picture. I'm going to take a picture of my food, right? Taking pictures of food was a pastime only for like food magazine journalists. It was food magazine journalists. And now everybody takes pictures of their food because why? We have a camera with us. And so when we have a camera, we think we should be able to take a picture of our food. So the environment, if you will, opens up possibilities and limits possibilities of what we can and cannot do and what we do and do not do. So when you have an environment of social media, when you have an environment where there's a technology of a camera phone, then everything becomes a picture. So similarly, we have grown up in our culture today in an environment of science in a, where, where science is the medium. Science is the lens that filters out all of our thoughts. We grow up in this. We're taught this in our high school. We're taught this in our elementary school. We're taught this in college. We learn how to measure. We learn how to count. We learn how to do mathematics. We learn how to do experiments and track and table and all of this stuff. And so we just grow up in this environment where now all of these things must be tracked. I like to think of it and has come to the forefront in my own thoughts in recent days when it comes to stats for football games or sporting events you know everything in a in a world where numbers are the most important in a world where science and quantification has the highest value then everything must be measured regardless of how significant the measurement is And the problem that we run into when we quantify is mistaking the significance 
of the quantification. We mistake the significance of the measurement. Neil Postman was famous for speaking of this in terms of IQ tests. And what he said was that what is an IQ test actually measuring? An IQ test is measuring one's ability to answer the questions that the test presents. And the questions on the test are the questions that a society or a culture has determined the things that equal intelligence. So we have defined intelligence by the ability to answer a set of questions. Now, I'm not here to argue whether or not IQ is a predictor of success or IQ tests are a predictor of achievement or competence in specific areas, which I think is borne out in some of the science, if we can term it that way. In some of the studies, you know, uh, people who do well on IQ tests have certain competencies that enable them to do better in certain fields, for example. What I am saying is that when a culture determines and defines intelligence in one way and then presents a test and questions to designate that, that is a little bit subjective in a a certain sense because I'm not sure that intelligence is just the questions on represented by the questions on an IQ test. But yet we are here, and for good or bad, that is what determines intelligence. We might disagree with it, might, we might agree with it, but culture and science has determined what intelligence is, and it has denoted that by the specific questions on an IQ test. But yet there's a problem, because I'm not sure that that's what intelligence is. And when we measure it by certain questions, we are saying that that is a measurement of intelligence, when in fact it may not be a measure of an intelligence, but it's a measure of some type of intelligence. And yet defining what that intelligence is, is a little bit challenging. Is it pattern recognition? Is it lateral thinking? Is it the ability to solve problems? Is it all of the above? So that is a little bit problematic in the sense that we have challenges with language. We have challenges with language. Language is an abstraction. In other words, the word is not the thing itself. Alfred Korczybski, who was the founder of General Semantics, talks about the idea that the map is not the territory. The word is not the thing. When he says the map is not the territory, what he means is that when we create a map of, say, the state of Michigan, that map is a representation, is an abstraction of the state of Michigan. It is not Michigan. When you hold a map or a picture of Michigan, we will say that's Michigan. You know, someone can put the map of Michigan or can put the map of Texas, which may be more easily recognizable, or the map of Florida and say, what is that? And we will say, that's Florida. No, 
That's not Florida. Florida is a geographic territory in the southeastern area of North America that is represented and designated by certain lines that are, you know, in re- related to longitudinal and latitudinal points on the globe. You know, that's what Florida is. It's an area. It's not a picture. What you're looking at, in other words, is you're looking at a picture of Florida. You're not looking at Florida. You're looking at a picture of Florida. So the map does not equal the territory. And what he's saying there is that language itself is a map. It is a way for us to communicate about reality. But language itself is not reality. Language is only a map of reality. And inevitably, our language leaves out the totality of reality. When we say, for example, a man, that is a high level of abstraction. We all know what a man is, but a man is a highly abstract term. You can say a bald man, or you can say a tall man, or you can say a short man, or you can say a short man wearing a dark suit, or you can say a short man wearing a dark suit who's living on XYZ Street in New York City, or you can say Mr. John Smith. Every one of those is moving the abstraction down to more specificity. But language, even when we say Mr. John Smith, that does not completely communicate the totality of everything that Mr. John Smith is. It just points us in the direction, right? And so when we say words like intelligence, that word is an abstraction. And we put meaning on that word. And the meaning on that word in the sense of the IQ test, the meaning is the answer to a specific set of questions, Right? We define that word in a particular way in reference to an IQ test that is represented by the answers to a specific set of questions. But there are multiple definitions of intelligence, and not everybody agrees on them. I mean, certain scientists who are big on IQ tests, and again, I'm not here to disparage IQ tests or personality tests or things of that nature, but those are abstractions. Because we're using an abstract map to try to communicate something about reality. And the, the ultimate way that we try to communicate about reality, how can we communicate as clearly as we possibly can? Some would say the pure language is the language of mathematics because mathematics is measurable, right? We know, for example, a square has four sides. The theoretical square has four sides or the theoretical circle is, you know, uh, all points on a line equidistant from a center or something of that nature, however you want to get technical. But like measuring those things is difficult. Quantifying even mathematically is difficult when we look at the actual theory of mathematics versus the reality. So let's take a look. If we were to draw a circle on a piece of paper, we would say, boy, that looks like a circle. If we got a compass and we were to draw that circle on a piece of paper, we would say that looks like a circle. How can we measure that? Well, we can measure the diameter of that circle and we're going to say it's two inches in diameter. And that looks good on a piece of paper. But of course, we know that that's not completely accurate. It's two inches plus or minus and plus or minus the degree of measurement. 
if we zoom into that circle microscopically, we zoom in, we will notice that even the graphite line of the pencil that was drawn has little fragmentations and it goes up and down and it is not equidistant because the graphite on the pencil is not the same all the way around. It's not an actual point, right? And so even measuring it in whatever the smallest measurement you can possibly think of, which I believe is called a plank, right? The smallest possible size for anything in the universe is the plank, which is, yeah, I don't, I, I don't even know how to, my scientific knowledge when it comes to communicating <clears throat> these numbers is difficult. But let me put it to you this way. It is a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a centimeter. A one plank is a millionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a centimeter across. That is a decimal point followed by 34 zeros and then a one. That is a plank. That is the scale at which some things in the universe, for example, quantum foam, whatever that is, that is the scale at which some things in the universe are believed to exist. Now, we can't even measure a plank. That is theoretical. That is within the laws of quantum physics, right? That is something outside of our understanding of reality. But if you were to measure the length of a circle that you drew on a paper with a pencil and a compass in planks, you would know that from one distance to the middle on a circle to the next distance of the middle of a circle may be billions of a plank in difference. So we can measure it, but we can only measure it to an extent. We can measure the earth, but we can only measure it to an extent. So even in our most accurate attempts to measure certain things, we are not exact. We have problems with quantifying certain things, even in things like mathematics, even in things that we think are going to be easily measurable. If you've ever built a house or done any construction, you will know that if you measure the length of a board at, I don't know, eight feet and seven eighths of an inch, and then you use that board as a guide to measure the rest of the boards, well, sometimes you get the the your house messed up by several inches by the length of the pencil that marks off the end of those boards every time that you do it. And if you don't use one board as the measure, as the standard, but rather you cut one, you draw the line, you measure it, you put that one in place, you cut the next one and you use that one and you draw the line and then you cut it. Every time you're drawing that pencil line, it is adding distance onto it. Right. And so that little distance can really mess up your house if you're building rafters or something like that. And your roof comes out three or four inches off at the end of that roof because you measured incorrectly or because you misunderstood that the 16th of an inch or the eighth of an inch represented by the line of a pencil wasn't going to really be effective. Uh, so you do want to measure, of course, with a with a standard measurement. But. Even in those measurements, we're only accurate to a certain extent. And even if you measured accurately with your ruler every single board at 
eight feet, seven and a quarter inches or eight feet, five and a half inches or whatever it may be, that measurement is somewhat accurate. If you were to measure that in planks, it could be billions and billions and billions of planks off one to the next. So going down in size, of course, challenges that. Now, think about things like good. Think about things like truth. I serve as a head of school, and our goal is to provide a great education for our students. Inevitably, when a parent will come in and ask me, hey, I want a good education for my student, my question is, well, can you define that for me? What do you mean by a good education? Do you mean good test scores? Do you mean good grades? Do you mean a certain corpus of knowledge? Do you mean good sports? Do you mean good social activities? What do you mean by a good education? And that's a challenging question because we all have the idea, the vague abstraction in Korzybski's terms, the map of a good education. But when it comes to defining that, someone will say, well, yeah, I want my kid to get good grades and I want them to get good test scores and, you know, I want them to be able to get into a good college. And okay, well, you know, what we can do is I can just give your kid all A's no matter what they put on the test and give them good test scores and get them into college. I don't believe that that will translate into that the fact that they were educated in a good way. Um, there needs to be some type of rigor and some, some things, uh, when it comes to a good education, people disagree on, but it's important to recognize that it's difficult to quantify that it's difficult. We, and education tries to do that by standardized testing, right? If you answer these questions on a standardized test and you're able to achieve a level of competence, then you have been educated well, or if you have a certain corpus of knowledge, then you have been educated well, and that's educated well, according to the education standards, whichever ones you might uh, subject yourself to or measure yourself to. And guess what? There's a lot of different standards out there. When it comes to education, there are a lot of different standards and they measure different things. Does that mean that one is better than the other when it comes to education? Not necessarily. It just means that they're measuring different things. So it's difficult to quantify a good education, but it's important that you do have an idea of what you're looking for when it comes to a good education, because that's going to determine what your school is about. That's going to determine what you're going to pursue. That's going to determine, you know, what is important. Think of things like happiness. Well, what is happiness? How do we measure happiness? I've talked about it on this podcast before. Success. People will say we want success. Well, how do you measure that? What does that mean? Does that mean you have a lot of money? Does that mean because a lot of people that may be quote unquote successful in one avenue of their life, they have a good job where they have a lot of money, may be unsuccessful in other areas. Maybe their marriage is failing. Maybe their kids don't want to talk to them. Maybe they have no friends. Maybe they have no social life. Maybe they have no hobbies. So is that a successful life? Maybe they've been divorced three times. Is it a successful life if you've got a good job and you reach a certain standard of income level? But how, and they, how do you define that? 
How do you measure that? How do you measure success? How do you how do you measure happiness? Again, the we we talk, I wrote about this in a article on here um, on this website, Mind for Life, and I'll, I'll reference that. But I believe it's um, answering the question of why, and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, you know, kind of figuring out what your purpose is. What are you aiming for? You can make your own definition of success. Now, the world around us has definitions of success. You are a famous person. Maybe fame is considered a definition of success. You have a lot of money. A lot of money is a definition of success for some people. Maybe you have a lot of houses or you own a lot of real estate. Maybe you've got a great family. Maybe you've got a fulfilling job. Those are all definitions of success. And it's diff- that's a difficult concept to quantify. But what you have to do, what I have to do is I have to determine what my own definitions are. And somehow maybe those definitions line up with the general consensus of everyone around us in certain ways. And maybe sometimes they don't. But that is something that's difficult to quantify. Happiness is difficult to quantify. Another concept, and these are far Again, this is based on language because these words are abstractions. They are maps of reality that don't communicate everything about reality, but only certain parts of it. What is truth? What is true? Is there a difference between truth and fact? We've heard a lot in the past couple years about alternative facts or alternate facts. And this happens in politics because one side will look at a specific set of facts and interpret it one way while another side will look at a specific set of facts and interpret it in a completely different way. This is called spin, right? You hear a politician or you hear a debate and you go into the spin room afterwards and people are telling you what you heard and what you didn't hear. They are sharing their facts and the other side is sharing their facts about whatever it might be. Here is an example. Recently, It is August of 2022, and if you're listening to this at a different time, you can go back in the history books and look. Uh, Our inflation rate is somewhere around 8%, right? The inflation has gone up as a result of COVID and all of the all of the policies and the government printed tons of money and gave out uh, money to everybody, loans and everything like that. And of course, if you are an economist, you should know that when you print money, that does that solves problems in the short term, but creates other problems in the long term. Because when there's more money around, the price of goods um kind of rises with the money you know it rises and falls with the amount of money around so now if you were to go to get chipotle you know it's 20 bucks instead of 10 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever so inflation is right now at 8.5 percent 
Um, that is the inflation rate for the United States for the 12 months ending July 2022. So the president came out recently and said um, in July, he, he didn't say this. He said, we have 0% inflation. He made the comment in the speech, we have 0% inflation and was criticized by some. And then, of course, by his own party was, you know, they defended him by saying, no, he's speaking the truth. Well, again, 0% inflation based on a specific definition of what inflation may be. The inflation rate did not rise at a certain period of time. So it did not go up by 1%, say from June to July or from July to August. Inflation did not go up, so it was remained 0%. But that is an alternate fact to the actual inflation rate overall, right? Which is 8.5%. So was the president misleading in that when he was quantifying the inflation rate? Right. And this is the challenge that we have with language and semantics, because we can parse words back and forth. We can say the inflation is zero. It didn't go up at all. And that's true. Month to month, the inflation rate did not go up. But that is disingenuous when the inflation rate is at 8.5% and has gone up X amount or whatever the percentage has been since he's been in office. And you might can blame it on Trump or blame it on whatever. You can do whatever you want to do, and that's what politicians do. But we're talking about semantics here and parsing words and parsing language. And so the problem of quantification ultimately boils down to the fact that language presents problems for us. And it's interesting to note as well that there are certain things that certain languages allow for and other languages do not allow for. There is a reason why German is considered a philosophical language. It allows for philosophical discussion where other languages do not have allowance for that, even in the grammatical structure of those languages. I was listening to a TED talk. The talk was with a gentleman named Phuc Tran, and he is Vietnamese. And what he talks about in the TED talk, which is called Grammar Identity and the Dark Side of the Subjunctive, is the differences between Vietnamese, the Vietnamese language and the English language. In English, we have what's called a subjunctive mood. Right, The subjunctive mood is what allows us to say things like, if it hadn't rained, as the example he used, we would have gone to the park. If it hadn't rained, we would have gone to the park. You know, we can ponder that. You know, we have a language that allows us to perceive something like that. If it hadn't rained, well, we would have gone to the park or if it hadn't rained, well, we could have had a cookout outside and we would have had burgers, you know, and we can kind of think about these alternate realities. But Vietnamese does not allow for that even to be thought of. There is no subjunctive mood. There's no language to be able to think about what would have happened if something else had happened. So all of these conditions are what require uh, 
uh, of the conditions that require us to be able to think about things in terms of possibilities or potentialities are not available in Vietnamese. They, they're just not there. And so language prevents us from thinking about things and then allows us to think about other things that other languages just don't allow for. And so it's important to realize that we do not have the ability to think in ways that other people who are non-native English speakers or who speak a different language natively than English are allowed to think in or don't know English, right? And so that happens with all languages. Language is the map that provides, you know, an entrance into the reality of what the territory is. And so when we talk about things that we can measure, talk about things that we can know and talk about things that we can understand, we have to remember all of those things are conditioned by the language which allows us to think about those things. And so ultimately, what am I saying when I talk about the problem of quantification? What I'm saying is that quantification gives us a false perspective on the world. When we talk about impacts on human perception, when we talk about what we can perceive in the world, our ability to perceive things in the world is filtered by, number one, the environment in which we live, which is basically an environment that is dictated by a certain type of language. We speak the language of science. We live in the medium of science. We live in the environment of science, and we live within a particular language within that environment. And that language either allows for or prevents certain ways that we can perceive the world around us. And so your language is important. It was philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. He said this, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And so when you look at the world around you and when you see the things that you see and when you perceive the things that you perceive, it's important to recognize that number one, it's difficult to quantify certain things because we just are unable to do it. Number two, the things that we think we can quantify are challenging when it comes to the scale. And as we get more microscopic down to the length of planks, that type of measurement is called into question as well. And so we can quantify things certainly to a certain extent. And to be truthful, that extent sometimes may be enough and in fact is enough. In fact, right, a lot of the science and the things that we've been able to do in our world have been great. The measurements that we've had have been great. But when we quantify things and not recognize the significance or whether or not those things are significant, right, whether or not a football player can catch a pass when it's sunny and it's the first Thursday in September and the years that end with a even number and blah, 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 you know, make the stat up that you want. You can make up any stat to explain something. And when we live in a language of numbers, it's important to make stats up that give some type of explanation. But critical thinkers are people who can go, hmm, that's a great stat. It's interesting, but it really says nothing about reality. It is a made up statistic that explains something, but is that significant? It's a measurement that explains something, but how significant 
is that? When we say this is the happiness scale, what is the definition of a happiness scale and how significant is that? And is it even important to measure that? What is IQ? How can we measure that? And is it important to measure that? And how accurate is that? And is intelligence even represented by a certain set of questions on a test? So all of those things are things that are interesting to think about. It's interesting to understand the problem of quantification, what we can actually quantify and what we can't. And then it's also interesting to recognize that our language limits what we can understand and what we can think. So as you think about the world and as you go off into existence and live your life, the amazing thing is that we can live our life. The amazing thing is that we can actually communicate that we can communicate with one another in this abstraction of language. We can talk to one another and we can understand one another. That is truly, truly amazing. So uh, we were going to continue this series, and this has been the problem of quantification. We will continue this series on impacts on human perception as we go on. Appreciate you listening to the Mind for Life podcast. want to encourage you again to tune in to some of our past podcasts on this uh, area, and we've got a whole list of podcasts that can be helpful for you. Some resources on our website, the 52 Skills that will contribute to success in life and business. There's an article on that. You can access that on a website as well as the 52 Essential Skills Assessment. And this five-step process too is starting a difficult conversation, really about conflict management. It kind of gives you an entrance into some of the techniques that can help you to be better at navigating and communicating with other people in times of conflict. So, Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. I hope you have a great week.